0: From Dartmouth College, I'm Mike Mastenduno, the Nelson Rockefeller Professor of Government. Welcome back to this final post-election episode of The Ballot, a Dartmouth podcast. In his inaugural address, President Joe Biden urged his fellow politicians to put an end to legislative gridlock and work more closely together to beat the pandemic and restart the economy. Biden said, every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. And my fellow Americans, we have to be different than this. But can we be different? Can we relearn to work together, both in the political system and as ordinary Americans? Today we pose that question to Maine Senator Angus King, Dartmouth class of 1966, who's an independent and caucuses with the Democrats. We'll also be talking with Russell Muirhead, the Robert Clemens professor at Dartmouth, who's an academic expert on partisanship and also a newly elected New Hampshire state representative. And finally, we're going to wrap up our segment with some thoughts about the months ahead from New Hampshire Congresswoman Ann Custer. Like most Americans, I was appalled to see the U.S. Capitol stormed and ransacked on January 6th. This was the lowest point in a year that had more than its share of political low points. It's important for the perpetrators of these crimes and those who aided and abetted them to be brought to justice. But how did we get to this point? Many, no doubt, will want to lay the blame squarely on former President Trump, and he clearly bears significant responsibility. Trump acted irresponsibly to say the least. But I think the roots of this problem are deeper than one powerful politician. The January 6th tragedy had two elements, the use of political violence and the contesting of a legitimate presidential election. Unfortunately, over the last two decades, both have become normalized in American politics. The Supreme Court had to become involved in 2000, And in 2004, several Democrats objected to George W. Bush's presidential win, claiming widespread irregularities in voting, especially in Ohio. Many Republicans returned the favor in 2008, contesting not the election, but the legitimacy of the president himself, questioning whether Barack Obama was really an American. Trump's electoral victory in 2016 was met by many Democrats with disbelief and insistence that outside players, the Russians, had rigged the election. That narrative persists to this day. Finally, in 2020, many of Trump supporters refused to accept and still refuse to accept that Biden has been legitimately elected. Trump's distinctive contribution, of course, was to lead the charge with misinformation rather than to accept the outcome graciously the way just about every other national politician does. So even though 2020 was the worst example yet, we've developed a bad collective habit of people not accepting electoral outcomes When the other side wins. Well, what about violence? Violence certainly has a sordid history in American politics, but for the most part has been considered extraordinary and unacceptable. In the summer of 2020 political violence became normalized alongside constructive peaceful protests night after night, week after week and month after month, we witnessed looting, arson and destruction of property in major American cities. Many American political and media elites excused, rationalized, or downplayed this violence. Now, did the summer violence justify January 6th? Absolutely not. Both should be condemned and treated as unacceptable in the context of democratic politics. Instead, sadly, reaction to violence seems to mirror our political divisions. Whether one condemns it depends on who's doing it and for what reason. Well, to paraphrase our new legitimately elected president, we need to do better, both in accepting that in elections somebody wins, somebody loses, but don't worry, you get to play again in four years. And in accepting that frustration with politics does not justify threatening lives and destroying property, whether private or public, and for whatever reason. Bottom line here, we've got a lot of work to do, regardless of whether or not Trump disappears from the political scene. So, can we overcome our divisions and work together in politics? Let's begin the conversation with Senator Angus King. Senator King, welcome to the ballot.
1: Mike, great to be with you. Pleasure to, to have a chance to chat and be back in Hanover, if only virtually.
0: Thank you so much. Well, Senator, you've been an independent since the 1990s. You served as governor of Maine before becoming the state's first independent senator in 2013. So I think it's fair to say you've had a lot of time to observe the breakdown of bipartisanship in American politics. From your perspective, how did we get here and how do we get out of this?
1: Well, if I had to attribute it to any one development, it's what I call the balkanization of the news business. When I was coming up in the 60s and 70s, everybody in America got their facts and their news from one person. I'll bet you you can guess who who I'm talking about.
0: And that's the way it is.
1: Yep, Walter Cronkite. (laughs) But what's happened now is that there is such a diversity of sources of information and information on all sides, people tend to choose the medium of uh, the source of information to suit their pre-existing biases. I'm sure you're familiar. The term is confirmation bias. What I found in, in public policy going back 35 or 40 years is that if you have a group of people that have a general agreement on the facts it's pretty easy to reach a policy conclusion. If you don't have agreement on the facts, whether it's immigration or guns or abortion or election returns, it's almost impossible to reach a a policy conclusion and some kind of consensus. And the problem is now we've got a country that are living in in alternative worlds in terms of, of, of the facts, the best The best example is the 2020 election. 70 plus million people voted for Donald Trump, and I'll bet you 50 million of them to this day believe the election was stolen from him and was rigged. That's not the fact. That's not the truth. But they believe it. And so that really undermines uh, our ability to solve problems in the country. There's a second development that's a little more subtle that I think is worth mentioning and it relates to gerrymandering and sort of single member or single party districts. The key election in many congressional districts is the primary, not the general election. And if it's a heavily Republican district, it's whoever wins the Republican primary is gonna be the Congressman. Same thing with a heavily Democratic district in Manhattan or wherever it is, it's gonna be the Democrat. The result of that is that it tends to move us to the extremes in a primary, who votes? The more active members of the party, the more passionately committed. And so the tendency is to get candidates on the edges, prevail in the primaries. The secondary problem is, and this is what really bothers me, we've gotten to a point now in our country where you can lose your election, you can lose your seat, not because of your position on abortion or gay marriage or whatever the political issue is, but because you're seen as willing to compromise with the other side. When we're at a place where people are afraid of losing their seat because of being reasonable, that's really dangerous because the location of that is it's impossible to ever get a compromise to get a solution, and any complex issue involves compromise. So those two things, I think, the gerrymandering The sort of single-party districts and the balkanization of the news business where there's no consensus on on the facts have created this very, very polarized situation. The Senate is only a reflection of the people. The Senate is polarized, but it's because the country's polarized.
0: The interesting question for us as a nation and a people, and I like the point, too, about the Senate simply a reflection of a polarized society, is how do we move back to something less polarized? We have a new president who's basically argued that Americans need to work together to find cooperative solutions to big problems. Is the president powerful enough to make this happen? And what do you see as the most important tools that he would have at his disposal?
1: The, the, the president can talk about working together and working across the aisle, which I think he's totally sincere about, one of the problems is the Senate is a very different place than it was when when he left uh, even uh, 12 years ago. And it's, it's very difficult. You can't work together if one side doesn't want to work together. One side feels that it's in their interest to just obstruct. So that's, uh, you know, that's the difficulty.
0: And, and that raises another interesting question that I'd love to get your take on. The New York Times recently and not exactly a hostile outlet when it comes to the Democrats. Uh, recently published an op-ed that was urging President Biden to ease up on the executive orders. And I'd I'd love for you to comment on on this. It seems that president after president, regardless of what party recently, uh, have decided that it's easier to work through executive orders than to do the hard work that you were just talking about of, of reaching compromise. Is this a worrisome trend or kind of a political necessity? How, how do
1: you no, see that? Of, of course, it's a worrisome trend. And it, you, you can interpret it one of two ways. You can interpret it as saying presidents are impatient and don't want to take the time and the work to do the legislative process. Or you can interpret it that the legislative process is broken. And if you want to get something done, you got to do it this way. So it's it's a little bit of both. The Congress has systematically, in my view, going back 50, 60 years, given away a lot of its power. One of the most fundamental responsibilities in the Constitution is to declare war. Congress hasn't declared war since 1942, even though we've certainly been in some serious military conflicts. Another specific constitutional responsibility of Congress is foreign trade. They've abdicated that almost entirely to the president. The prior Republican Congress abdicated the power of the purse to President Trump, which I just found astounding. They allowed him to raid the military construction budget to build the wall. My position is that what we've really seen is is a slow motion institutional suicide by the Congress. Why has that happened? Number one, because it's hard. Working complex issues is hard. Number two, because of the polarization, sometimes it's impossible. You just can't get there. Number three, part of it is Congress doesn't want to take responsibility. Why vote to declare war if a couple of years later, people are going to say, you know, you got us into this. I mean, ask Hillary Clinton about her vote in favor of Iraq and whatever it was, 2005. So Congress would just as soon stand back and criticize the president rather than step up and say, yep, we, we're, we're authorizing this. And the war is a good example. There, there was quite a debate in August of 1787 about the war power. And basically the compromise was we're going to make the president commander in chief, but the Congress has to decide about starting a war in the first place. That was a deliberate division of, of authority, which as you know, is what the constitution really is all about. It, it's dividing authority. The Congress as I say, really just doesn't really want to take this responsibility. And Madison's premise was that institutional loyalty would trump political loyalty. And of course, at the time of the Constitution, there weren't parties, they didn't want parties. Madison hated parties, Washington hated parties, but they came anyway. But what we've seen is that partisan loyalty, which surprised me, overcomes loyalty to your institution when that happens, we've become a parliamentary system.
0: That's right. And we've become a parliamentary system without the benefits of it. But I guess one of the questions is, is this a reversible process? And what might it take to do that? How does one recreate an an institutional identity, as you put it, in the House and Senate? Is there a way to do that?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of ways. One is that those of us who are in this job have to try to push and prod and poke and take those kinds of responsibilities and and try to make it a more effective body. There are some institutional problems that we can talk about, about the majority leader having too much power and the loss of power of the committees and those things. The other thing that I think is important, and it goes back to what I said at the beginning about the sources of information and the sources of disinformation, We've got to educate people better about how to be critical thinkers about the information that they're being fed. If you stop and think about it, we had a thousand years to work out a kind of internal understanding of the written word and how to assess the truth of the written word. And we had protections. We had the First Amendment, but we also had libel laws. There were sort of unspoken assumptions about editors and fact checkers. So if you read something on a piece of paper, you gave it the benefit of the doubt. The problem is we've conveyed that mentality, that benefit of the doubt to something that's written in the basement by some conspiracy minded guy. And we're not critical. We're not, people are just swallowing this stuff whole. And I think it starts in the first grade. I mean, digital literacy, I think should be as, as ubiquitous as the ABCs. Uh, not only how to read, but how to understand that you're reading one side, how to look for the other. I wrote a Instagram post the other day, and my last line was, the truth will indeed make us free. We just are going to have to work harder to find it.
0: <laughs> well, Well put. I like that. Yes. But actually what you're saying holds, holds a lot of truth in, in education as well. I mean, it, education is the place where these kind of critical skills uh, need to come into play. And I even find with students today, you know, there's so much on the internet and so much of it is worthless. Part of education is creating that mental facility so that one could tell what is worthless from what is actually useful. And, Starting children earlier to, to do that would make a lot of sense. Probably getting them back in school would probably help as well, but that's- Well, and,
1: and teaching civics in high school wouldn't hurt either. There, there, we've got a whole generation of people that don't know branches of government or the relationship between the Supreme Court and the Congress. And by the way, we, we had a guy who just left the presidency who didn't understand that stuff.
0: Well, Senator King, let me ask you this question. Independence are kind of a rarity At the highest levels of American politics. I guess in the Senate, there are currently two, including yourself. Does being an independent give you uh, anything extra in terms of leverage or credibility when you're trying to work on political compromises? I mean, does it matter that you're an independent?
1: I think it it matters in a couple of ways. Number one, it's liberating to me Mm -hmm. to be able to make decisions independently on, on a particular issue and not worry about Is this the party line, or am I going to offend a a major contributor group to the party, or something like that? So, in that sense, it's liberating. I think it also contributes somewhat to my ability to work across the party lines. Not entirely, because when I first came here, I I realized I had this fantasy of, you know, putting my chair in the middle of the aisle and (laughs) not joining up with anybody. But I realized pretty quickly that your committee assignments are done by the caucuses. So if, if I wanted to be on a committee, which of course I did in order to be effective, that's where a lot of the work takes place. I had to choose one or the other of the caucuses. And I talked to the Democrats and I talked to the Republicans and decided to caucus with the Democrats. But once I did that, I have a good friend, a Republican. And I said, you guys think of me as two thirds of a Democrat, don't you? And he said, no, actually three-quarters. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I, I, I wish I could claim that I have this great cross-border credibility. I think I have a little bit, but I just it may be because of who I am rather than my label.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably the case, but I don't think it would hurt American politics to have uh, many more independents, regardless of where they were caucusing. That's just my view. We talked a little bit about the COVID relief bill. I wanted to get your sense of, are there other substantive issues coming down down the line that you think are real opportunities for bipartisanship? I mean, even if there are certain people that are intransigent on either side, uh, how do you kind of work the middle here and, and what kind of issues are most promising?
1: Well, I think the Biden administration circumstances forced them to start with COVID just because it's the absolutely most pressing problem we we have to deal with. And it, it would have looked ridiculous to say, well, we'll get to COVID next April. On the other hand, I think the biggest opportunity for bipartisanship with an asterisk, and I'll get to that, is infrastructure. Everybody agrees we've got to do a major infrastructure upgrade. Roads, highways, bridges, broadband to me is basic infrastructure that's got to be part of the package. But even there, the asterisk is, how is it paid for? And we've gotten ourselves into this place where politicians for a generation have essentially told the public, you can have everything you want, an army, a state university, garbage pickup at the curb, but you don't have to really pay too much for it and we've created a, an atmosphere. The example is the highway where the gas tax, which is essentially a user fee, you pay it as you as you use the highways, hasn't been changed since 1993. But I can tell you nobody around here that I know of wants to talk about raising the gas tax. It's an easy 30 second ad. You know, I could write the ad. He went to Washington to raise your taxes. And Here's an interesting story about the gas tax. I had a group uh, representing the American trucking industry in my office a a while ago, and they were adamant about raising the gas tax. They wanted the gas tax raise. And I was surprised. I said, holy smoke, you guys pay huge amount of gas taxes. You wanna raise it? You know why? They're paying more in in truck repairs than an increase in the gas tax because of the lousy roads and I'm sure that's true of ordinary citizens, that's gonna be the struggle. Everybody's for infrastructure, nobody's for paying for it. So that's, a, that's one to watch over the next six months.
0: I think that's a very sensible way to think about it. And it does raise the broader problem of fiscal responsibility and how that seems to be a value that is now seen as somehow quaint, <laughs> I think in both parties. You know, we talk, we used to talk about billions and billions being a lot. Now we just casually toss around trillions of dollars yeah. in government spending. Is this an, an issue of urgency that we should worry about? There's
1: a whole school of economics that basically says, don't worry about it. I do worry about it. And, and here's why. It's all about interest rates. Right now, we have, a, we have about a $22 trillion national debt. And interest rates are barely one percent. So the interest payment on that debt in a year is two hundred billion dollars. We can, you know, we can handle that. What if interest rates go back to the norm of five percent? Then you're talking about a trillion five, just in debt payments. That happens to be equal to the entire discretionary federal budget. So my question to my friends that say, don't worry about the debt is, okay, what are you gonna cut? Because we gotta pay the interest. We gotta pay our creditors. So what do we do then in terms of meeting the needs of defense or of the Department of Agriculture or FCC or anything else? My concern is very pragmatic. The other concern I have is that it's not generationally ethical. We are basically not paying the cost of our services that we're consuming and telling our kids, but you're going to have to pay it. I had my staff do some research about six or eight months ago before COVID. By the way, you got to borrow during COVID. you got to spend to get out of a hole. That's what that is all about. The problem is we passed a massive tax cut in the middle of a boom in 2017. Instead of cutting taxes, then we should have been paying down debt but instead we cut taxes and it's made what we're doing now much, much harder. Anyway, we did an analysis that if you look at federal revenues and expenditures and you take out the Bush and the Trump tax cuts, we have a balanced budget. In other words, if you had the 1995 or 1999 tax code, we'd have a balanced budget. That's not to say we don't have to control costs But we also have to be sure that the revenues are there to do what we want to do. So that's King on the budget.
0: (laughs) Senator King, you've given us a lot to think about, but I really think I have to let you get back to work here. So uh, I appreciate you being with us.
1: Well, it's great to be with you, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity and the good questions. And I have so many friends up there in Hanover, and uh, I always like to get back and hopefully We'll get out of this pandemic in the reasonably near future, and I'll be able to uh, get up to see you in person. So thanks for the time.
0: Thank you again for sharing your good thoughts with us. All right, let's now turn to Russ Muirhead, who's chair of Dartmouth's Department of Government, who's a state legislator and a prolific writer. With Nancy Rosenbaum, he co-authored the 2019 book, A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Russ, thanks for joining us on the ballot. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Hey Russ, let's start with your latest book. It's centered around this idea of the new conspiracism. Can you tell us what conspiracism is and in what sense this is new?
2: Nancy and I think of conspiracism as something that's a little bit different from conspiracy theory. Those two words, conspiracy and theory, always go together. You can hardly use one without using the other. And what we see today is not really conspiracy theory. We see conspiracy without the theory. And we've seen it really for much the last five years. Take birtherism, the the idea that there was a conspiracy to install somebody who wasn't constitutionally eligible to hold the presidential office in the White House. That person was Barack Obama. And according to birtherism, he wasn't born in the United States and thus was ineligible. There's literally no evidence. I mean, it's not only evidence-free, it's impervious to this positive kind of evidence that's been adduced, namely Barack Obama's birth certificate. And that conspiracy without the theory, which is just a bare assertion, ends up, you know, hits American politics right about 2015. It's propagated, uh, I think, most energetically by Donald Trump before he even announces his candidacy. And it metastasizes into something like Pizzagate in the 2016 presidential campaign. Pizzagate is this concoction. Again, it's not a theory, it's a concoction that Hillary Clinton was running a child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of a pizzeria in Washington, DC. There's an actual pizzeria that's named in the story. And you know, preposterous as the story is, Edgar Welsh showed up with an assault rifle to quote, self-investigate the theory. He fired the rifle at a locked door in the back of the pizzeria, hoping to get access to the basement and free these children who were being held. Um, what he found was a, a store room full of flour and also discovered the pizzeria was built on a slab and had no basement. There was no evidence whatsoever. There was nothing like evidence. That contrast that with you know, the classic conspiracy theory that President Kennedy wasn't killed by a lone gunman. And there are books that work over all the evidence for that theory. It might be mad and maddening. It might be kind of an epistemic trap that once you step into, you can't get out of. But it's still a theory. And it explains something that's hard to understand: how the most protected person in the world gets assassinated by one lone person, or, or you know, the conspiracy theories around 9/11. How do 19 Saudi dissidents, roughly speaking, successfully attack the U.S. Pentagon and nearly destroy it? Not to mention the World Trade Centers. Uh, the cause is so puny, the the effects so world historical. There's a lot to explain there. In 9/11, that's a theory. Now we have conspiracy without the theory, and that's why we call it something new.
0: Excellent. Okay. So that's really an interesting way to think about this. So A couple of questions come from that. One would be, is conspiracism the kind of exclusive preserve of the right side of American politics, or do you find it on both sides, or is it not even partisan? And let me just give you an example. So the idea that the Russians rigged the 2016 election. Is that conspiracism, conspiracy theory, something altogether different? In other words, how do, we, how do we put the new conspiracism you guys have pointed to in context?
2: Nancy and I, well, we just really expected to see this phenomenon all across the political spectrum. And we expected to see it because it's useful to people seeking power to be able to eradicate facts that are inconvenient for your cause. Think about the old Soviet, the Stalin-esque leaders just airbrushing out, out of favor people in the old pictures. Facts are stubborn and, and facts are inconvenient for power seekers and political people don't like facts basically. And uh, they wanna remake the world according to their own design. Conspiracism is a very powerful tool that allows people to do that. We expected therefore to see it all over and as political scientists, we didn't want to write a partisan book that criticism is of just one side of the partisan divide. We, we wanted to kind of diagnose causes that were affecting the polity all around. So we really energetically looked to see what we could find back when we were sending the book to press to find this stuff on the left. And we couldn't find it. We just couldn't. We found conspiracy theory on the left. The left does go for conspiracy theory, and, and, and some of it is pretty far fetched. I mean marxism is a is a great conspiracy theory of the left it almost defines the left and the left does have lots of conspiracy theories about um capital in particular not so many conspiracy theories about government because the left tends to appreciate the administrative state and government but i don't know maybe somebody like bernie sanders and he when he was running he said you know the business model of wall street is fraud and <laughs> you know, there was no evidence for it. I guess he could have produced evidence. There was plenty of fraud on Wall Street. But I mean, that might've been this kind of just free floating conspiratorial charge that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people driving from New Jersey through Lincoln Tunnel every morning to work in the towers of South Manhattan were engaged in a systematic conspiracy to defraud corporations across the world and individuals. So, so that might be something that, but basically we just couldn't find much of this conspiracy without the theory on, on the left, and we see it not only on the right, but we now see it defining the Republican Party. And it's, you know, in version one, we expected Republican officials to stand up to it and speak truth to conspiracy. But birth, birtherism back in like 2008, I, I suppose, John McCain is confronted by a woman at a town hall who says that Barack Obama is an Arab and he interrupts her and he says, no ma'am, no ma'am. He's not. He's an American. He's a good American. He's a family man. He and I disagree about certain policies and we have a real disagreement. That's what this campaign's about. You know, he he just rebutted it as soon as he heard it. And that's what we expected to the Republican Party to be modeled on the response of Jeff Flake and, and eventually what became, you know, Mitt Romney's response. And we were flabbergasted to see that instead, this fact-free assertions that make up the new conspiracism came to define the Republican Party. And I really mean define it. When 138 members of Congress from the Republican Party vote to reject the slate of electors from Pennsylvania on January 6th, what you see is the stolen election conspiracy defining the Republican Party.
0: In that case, conspiracy more than conspiracism? or conspiracies I mean, more than conspiracy.
2: The rigged election conspiracy is another one of these conspiracies without any evidence. It, it's something that Trump actually defines him. He, he begins talking about it in the summer of 2016 when, he, when he's behind Clinton in the polls. He, he's preparing an excuse and he's preparing a basis to contest a close election. Curiously enough, and this is a really weird thing, He sticks with the rigged election conspiracy after he's elected. I mean, I don't think you can find that many people who say the election that elected them was rigged. But Trump did. It's because he couldn't bear the fact that he lost the popular vote. Yeah. And so he actually he said it was rigged in California. It was rigged in New Hampshire. New Hampshire became the focus of his rigged election conspiracy in the winter of 2017. And you know, I live up here. It's really hard for busloads of people from Massachusetts to get out at you know a little uh, high school in rural Vermont and start filling the voting place to vote fraudulently. It'd be hard to do it even in Manchester or Nashua. People know each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, nonetheless, this was investigated by the secret- Secretary of State's office in the state of New Hampshire. It was definitively rejected, but Trump stuck with it. And he nursed this all the way along until the 2016 election. So that rigged election conspiracy, which morphs into the stolen election conspiracy after the election of 2020, is a classic and great example of this conspiracy without the theory. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. There's no evidence that there was fraud in Philadelphia. But you got 138 members of Congress to vote on the basis of of that allegation.
0: Okay, so that takes us into the broader issue of American politics today, and this whole question of whether Americans again, work together, come together across party lines. In some of your earlier work, Russ, you, I think, made the argument that strong partisanship can be a very good thing, a very healthy thing in politics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Take us through that argument, and also answer the question, is strong partisanship compatible with bipartisanship?
2: I really think that, that there are almost no political questions that have perfect answers. The best we can do is come up with an answer that's you know, partly satisfying, partly convincing. And so any of us who are really like political science professors, even when we stand somewhere, we stand with a certain amount of doubt in our minds. We think, well, I'm 70% sure that's enough to go with this policy or this candidate. And that's just another way of saying that the great ideologies of modern democracy, you could call it liberalism and conservatism, each contain a large share of truth. And, and it's hard to know when they're the right ones. And so I think there's a real, it's a salutary contest and there's a lot that each side can learn from the other. And the vigorous disagreement is I think a good thing for politics. I think of that as high partisanship. It's the partisanship of competing ideals and competing even in the, in the end governing philosophies. Low partisanship is when you machinate to maybe defraud the other side, you scheme to stack the deck or rig the game and incapacitate the other side, maybe even undermine the fairness of the contest. Gerrymandering would be an example of low partisanship. Perfectly legal, it's defended by the Supreme Court and it's terrible. It's corrupting, it undermines confidence in democratic institutions. And it doesn't contribute to the clash of competing positions and competing philosophies. So I defend high partisanship. And I I think it's a good thing. I don't think we should all get along. I think we should all disagree. And there's a lot to be learned from the disagreement. But it's kind of subtle because I I don't, I think low partisanship crowds out high partisanship. And it's really a form of corruption.
0: So could you help some of our listeners, like think about the current American political context today and maybe give us an example or two of issues that lend themselves to high partisanship? So we can get a sense of how things could move constructively if force is allowed.
2: Well, almost, I mean, in a sense, almost every issue might. But let's just take the dominant one right before our eyes, the pandemic, and the tension over the last year that existed between the reasons drawn from public health and reasons drawn from um, an interest in the prosperity of the republic. So from the position of public health, you know, there was good reason to shut down the economy. And for a very, very extended length of time, even at the cost of producing mass unemployment, and from the position of prosperity, there was good reason to try to keep the economy open, as open as possible, and maybe even admit um, substantial health risks to the public in order to keep people working and earning. And so those are, you know, those are just competing principles. And the idea that we should just listen to the scientists, as if the scientists know exactly what public policy should do, I think was you know, an interesting piece of rhetoric, but but not really a good description of the tensions involved. And so I think, yeah, it wasn't surprising to me to see roughly speaking on the right, where conservatives are generally a little bit more concerned about the conditions and the factors that lead to prosperity, more sympathy for opening the economy. And uh, and on the left where, where there's more concern for you might even say equality, a concern that we should we should really protect people's health equally and not subject, you know, leave uh, the most vulnerable workers to added risks of of grave illness. So this is a, I think in the end that those two things have to be, it's not clear what a governor should do at any particular moment in time. You have to take stock of the conditions underfoot at that moment and make a judgment call. And there's a balance involved. It makes sense that there might be parties that tilt a little bit differently or tilt against each other in informing that judgment.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think for two reasons, one, It emphasizes that, you know, politicians need humility more than certainty, and it seems that a lot of politicians today think certainty is the way we have to go. And the second thing it does to me is it nicely contrasts the high politics that you've described with some of the low politics we saw in that debate, which is people on one side saying, you know, the virus doesn't even exist. Because they want their position to be so strong and clear. And on the other side, people saying, you know, if you want to open the economy, you're in favor of killing old people. You know, yeah. both of those arguments seemed absurd. And it moves the public away from a conception that politics is about trade offs and choices, not simply about principles, ideals, and screaming that you're correct, you know, more loudly than your opposition. So I, I, th- I do think you're onto something there.
2: You know, it's really hard to get get absolute purity in politics, hard to get any form of purity, pure truth and pure righteousness. Um, If we could get that in practical life, we really wouldn't need politics.
0: That's true. Well, speaking of that, Russ, you know, as political scientists, we study politics, but happily, we are under no obligation to become politicians. (laughs) But you, on the other hand, have decided to run for office. So, Russ, what are you doing here?
2: You know, it's it's uh, it's almost like going back to graduate school. I'm on the election law committee, and the and the stuff that comes at the bills that come to that committee, which are about different kinds of electoral systems and different ways of voting, are really really interesting. And I I can't you know I'm not learning I can't learn it fast enough. So it's it's a natural extension really of the kind of work I've been doing. And it just you know what's critical is is I need to remember I really don't as much as I've been know from having taught politics as it were for. Twenty-five years, I really don't know that much, and and so I just have to open my mind to all that there is to learn. And there's really a lot to learn. My colleagues have been serving in the legislature for many years, they're incredible experts, and it's it's really fun. And uh, and I hope that eventually I'll be able to contribute something.
0: Well, Russ, I'm certainly uh, I'm certainly glad you're doing it. <laughs> <Not me. laughs> I mean, I I had a similar experience early in my career. I took a year off from Dartmouth and served as a trade negotiator in the federal government. And I must say there were a lot of times I ripped up my lecture notes after, you know, (laughs) seeing how a certain thing played out. So it's actually a a good experience for those of us who study politics uh, to get our hands dirty a little bit, but maybe not too much.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And you know, one of the things I've noticed um, just in the first uh, month or two is that what's really going on in American politics isn't just polarization. It's not just that there are two sides that are farther apart than they used to be, called them liberal and conservative, left and right, Democrat, Republican, either partisan or ideological polarization. What's going on is that the two parties are splitting the vote almost equally. And e- whether they're close together or far apart, when the two parties split the vote almost equally, weird stuff gets going. But one thing you lose any incentive to compromise because you think, hey, we can win it back in the next election. Why should we compromise? We compromise, you know, we're in the minority we compromise. We'll give the governing party um, something to run on, something to brag about. So don't compromise, Mm. fight, fight, fight. And the other thing that happens is that when when you're splitting the elections really equally, parties are very tempted to look for ways of disenfranchising people on the margin because, because the margin can make the difference. And I think even splitting the vote like this, you know, leaves each side to try to grab more, to raise the stakes of politics, because they say, hey, we got the majority now, so let's ram as much stuff through as we can before we lose it.
0: Russ, I want to thank you so much. I always learn something from you, and this
2: was no exception. Yeah, thank you. It seems like we're just getting started.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm very happy to invite into the conversation New Hampshire Congresswoman Ann Custer, the first woman to represent the state's second district in Washington. Like Angus King, she was elected in 2012. As a long-term attorney and public advocate, Representative Custer has focused her career on increasing access to affordable health care and higher education for families. Representative Custer, welcome to the ballot.
3: Great to be with you. Thank you. So let's,
0: let's just start with a general question at a kind of crazy time. I mean, what do you think should be the highest priorities for... American political leaders in these first few months of the new administration?
3: Well, the highest priority is the urgent response to the COVID pandemic. And President Biden starts his administration with a tremendous challenge. It's very clear that the President Trump administration failed dramatically to have any kind of federal plan for responding to COVID-19. We were fortunate in that the science worked and Operation Warp Speed, the scientists did come up with vaccines that are safe and effective to tackle COVID-19. But what we failed in that administration was to have a coordinated response that would swiftly and efficiently vaccinate every American. And so that's the number one priority right now, because in order to get the economy back, get children back to school, get people back to work, get our society up and running, we need to be successful in ending the threat of the coronavirus.
0: And so what uh, what do you see as the sort of vaccine bottlenecks right now? Is it more a matter of production, distribution? I mean, how how should we be thinking about this as a kind of problem to be solved and quickly? If Right,
3: maybe. right. And that's the legislation that we're putting together. I've got two bills. First and foremost, one is focused on increasing production, manufacturing, and distribution of the vaccine. But the second is coordinating the data technology for the efficient administering of the vaccine. The vaccines are not useful in the vial. We need to get them in the arm of every American. And that's the challenge that we face is a public private partnership and it is a federal state partnership. And we need leadership at the top. And fortunately the timing is that the Biden administration will bring that leadership You know, again, President Trump was so woefully inadequate in his response. He didn't recognize the threat to public health from COVID-19, refusing to wear a mask, downplaying, calling it a hoax. And every day that was wasted, it results in people's lives being lost. So now we're having to work double overtime to make up that time And to bring relief to the American people just as fast as we possibly can.
0: Well, that's that's a laudable effort and a challenging one. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the federal state interface here, because it seems very clear that states have taken responsibility for vaccination distribution and administration. And I don't think that's simply by default. I mean, my sense is that. States see this as the proper prerogative of states. So what would be the best balance, in your view, between sort of the federal role and the state role here?
3: Well, part of the problem was there was no federal plan. I mean, we were talking about a federal plan almost a year. Our first hearing in our committee with Dr. Fauci was the 27th of February. And in the end, it turned out when the people in the Biden transition arrived in the office after the inauguration, there is no plan. And so it was just a default to the states. And some states have managed that and they've managed it fairly well. But many, many states are woefully, inadequately prepared. They don't have the information systems and the technology to set up the appointments. Um, Some states don't even have, in New Hampshire, we have a 211 number, or you can sign up online. Some states don't even have that alternative. And so elderly people, people with low income that don't have access to computers to sign up online, or they're not available. They can't take the appointments that are available because they have to work during the day. These are all bottlenecks that need to be solved. And what is tragic is I'm very focused on the equitable distribution of the vaccine both as a moral issue, but also as a public health issue. And from the early data, it's very clear that communities of color, low income communities, elderly communities, rural communities are not being equitably served in getting access to the vaccine.
0: I mean, some of the problems you discussed seem to me problems that states would have to work out, regardless of a federal plan.
3: In many cases, it's just inadequate funding. It's the largest vaccine distribution of any time in history of our country. And it's a mammoth task, 300 million people. And for most of these vaccines, that's two appointments and two shots. So just the sheer logistics of it, the planning, the coordination, the scheduling, it's a very daunting task. And it's going to take that coordination A plan from the federal level with protocols on what would be appropriate that every state have a telephone number so that everyone has an equal opportunity to get an appointment. Some of those parameters that would result in the fair and equitable distribution of the vaccine across the country to every American.
0: Let me take you in a slightly different direction here. I mean, President Biden came in with the substantive priority of the pandemic and the economy, but he also had what you might call a political process priority, which was to reestablish some semblance of bipartisanism in policymaking. The Democrats now control with slim majorities, you know, the House you're in and by an even slimmer majority, the Senate. What do you see from where you sit Uh, as the prospects for bipartisanship or political compromise or or whatever you want to call it going forward?
3: Well, on certain issues, I think we will definitely work in a bipartisan way. And we're discussing right now, not only this public health response, but also the economic response, uh, the COVID relief stimulus checks to individuals, the paycheck protection program loans to small businesses. These are all bipartisan priorities. What you can't ignore is that our country was attacked January 6th, and we are both the victims and the witnesses to that attack. And there were members of Congress and the President of the United States that were instigating or at a minimum complicit in that attack. And so it creates a very challenging environment for us to do our work. People are traumatized. We are working literally in a crime scene. In order to go vote, we walk right by the place where some people died during that insurrection. You know, it was crawling with FBI when we came back in that night. And so it's a challenging environment. But look, I come from a purple district. I've always worked in a bipartisan way. I've already introduced bipartisan bills on the opioid epidemic, on vaccines, on addressing environmental challenges. We have so many big issues that we have to solve and get right and get our country back on track that whatever it takes, uh, that's what we'll do. But Keep in mind, it's a very, very challenging environment and it's historically unprecedented.
0: So are, are you, I hope, telling me that the Democrats now in control will resist the temptation to play tit for tat?
3: I think, look, we have a lot of legislation, as I said, and we are going to be working double overtime to pass these bills. And they're important, addressing climate change, addressing uh, health inequities, addressing educational inequities, racial injustice, criminal justice reform. We have so many important priorities that have just been on hold you know, why not just bring it to the floor of the Senate and see if it passes up or down? That's what the process is all about. And we can negotiate and we can compromise and we can get to good legislation that can be passed into law and the American people can move forward.
0: So fair enough. Uh, One Time for one last question. I just want to ask you a, a general question about outlook. We're in very challenging times. Do you think Americans should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future?
3: I'm very, very optimistic, but I have to say elections have consequences, and it is not at all clear to me that our democracy would have survived four more years of Donald Trump. I was one of the last members out of the gallery on January 6th, just moments, not minutes, but seconds before that chamber was threatened by an angry mob of domestic terrorists, and All I can say is help is here in the nick of time. And I think all of the issues around disinformation, around the impact of the Internet, around conspiracy theories that have led so many Americans astray to the point that they would physically attack the United States Capitol and put people's lives in harm's way. Six Americans were killed, 140 members of the Capitol Police have injuries, some of them so severe, their lives will never be the same. And we need to have a complete and thorough investigation, not just what went wrong in the policing and in the decision making that day, but what went wrong in our society that led to that moment. And so I'm optimistic about the future. I'm very excited about not just Joe Biden, but Kamala Harris is historic. It's thrilling for me. I've waited my entire life to have a woman take the oath. And to be there for that inauguration was just thrilling. But these are very tenuous times. And we need to find a way to come together again and be Americans, because otherwise, I fear for the future of our democracy.
0: Well, Representative Custer, thank you so much for sharing your views and perspective. And I wish you all the best in the hard work ahead.
3: Thank you so much. Great to be with you.
0: And that does it for this edition of The Ballot. Thanks to producer Charlotte Albright and our friends and alumni relations. And thanks to all of you for listening to our series been a whirlwind couple of months and we're glad we've got this chance to navigate choppy seas together now let's all hope for some calmer waters. i'm mike Nuno saying goodbye for now